When all is said and done, what matters most is, are you saved? And so are you sure that you're saved? So this is a, in the Collide series that we've been in. Uh, we're talking about when faith collides with certain things, when faith collides with the culture, when faith collides with family, when your faith collides with the government and what the government says, what are we to do? Well, today we're talking about when faith collides with doubt. Are you sure that you're saved and have eternal life? You'd say, well, Brother Crispin, we're all here, aren't we? I mean, that means pretty much we're saved. And I'd say, well, wait just a minute. I went through 22 years of being in church and I was lost as a goose. And so, no, it doesn't mean that we're all saved and that we're all sure. So it is important that we preach on it and that we focus on it and that we go to the Scriptures and we ask ourselves that question. Did you know a lot of people will say that they've given their heart and life to Jesus Christ? They believe in Jesus by faith and will turn right around and say they're not sure if they died, however, they would go to heaven. And I would say, then what are you saved unto? What are you saved from? And so people have doubts. There are many who would say they believe there's no way a person can be certain that if they died, they would go to heaven. And so I want to address this today because I believe the Bible teaches you can be sure. You can be sure. Look at the screen or look in your Bible. 1 John chapter 5. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? That you may know. That you may know. That, that word means we can have absolute assurance. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God when faith and doubt collide. The Apostle John wrote his gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's the gospel of John about the life and ministry of Jesus and his disciples. But he wrote this letter, 1 John, so that we might know that we have eternal life. He wrote the gospel of John to evangelize the sinner. He wrote the letter of 1 John to edify the saved. He wrote the Gospel of John to tell us how we can be saved. And he wrote 1 John to help us know that we are saved. And so that tells me two things. When I think about how he wrote the Gospel and I think about what he's put in the letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, especially 1st John, it tells me two things. You can know for sure that you're saved. But it tells me a second thing. You can also be saved and have doubts. Now, I've heard people say and preach, buddy, if you've ever had doubt, you're not saved. You're not saved at all. But I don't believe that's true. People have to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. They have to grow in the Scriptures. They have to learn what the Word says. So if it weren't possible for you to be saved, but also struggle with doubts about it, then why did John write these two books? Why did he write the Gospel and then turn around and write First John and say that I'm giving you assurance so that you can know that you're saved. Well, it wouldn't make sense. He wouldn't need to write uh, the first letter of John if you couldn't have doubts whatsoever. Some people aren't concerned at all, however, about the judgment of God. They don't take it seriously whatsoever. But it's a serious matter. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why would the Word of God tell us to do that? Because we need to work it out. We need to make sure. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 says, Looking carefully, lest any one of you fall short of the grace of God. Why do we need to look carefully? Well, he answered that. Lest we fall short of the grace of God. 
He doesn't want anybody to fall short. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, Test yourselves to be sure that you're in the faith. Test yourself to see that you're in the faith. So let's do that today. Lest any of us fall short of the grace of God, lest any of us stand before Him and behold Him and be cast into everlasting death, eternal hell, separated from a loving God who died for you, sent Jesus to die for you on the cross and made it possible for you to have eternal life. Lest we miss heaven and miss Him, let's test ourselves as the Word says. And we find that here in 1 John. First of all, I'm going to tell you there's three tests you can take. You may be sitting there today, you say, that's me, man, I I have struggled with doubt. Sometimes I feel my faith is so strong in the Lord, and then something will happen, or someone will say something, or I'll hear a teaching on TV or something, and then I'll turn around going, maybe I'm not saved. So you struggle with doubt. Well, here's three tests. First of all, I want to give you the commandment test. Turn all the way back at 1 John, all the way back to chapter 2, and find verse 3. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he says, Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Now there's that word know again. By this we know that we know Him. Just like chapter 5, verse 13. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Verse 4. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who abides in him ought also to walk just as he walked. You might say, this is kind of convicting me. I can't say I've kept all the commandments of God and I know without a doubt I've never kept all of them at the same time. I would say, come on in. The water's fine, or maybe not so fine. I know there's commandments I've not kept. None of us have kept all the commandments. We know that we're a liar if we say that we have. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short. So we've got a huge problem with this verse, don't we? Because according to this text, we're all liars. We fail to keep His commandments. The word keep, however, is a mariner's term. It's a seafaring term. It's a term a ship captain knows. During John's day, ships had to navigate by keeping a watch on the stars. That's how they got where they needed to go. They learned to navigate according to keeping their eye on the constellations. At night, they had to look and watch closely. And so he uses this word and he tells us we're to navigate our lives and chart our course according to God's commandments. Now that doesn't mean we're going to live perfect lives. That doesn't mean we're going to be without sin, totally without sin. No captain ever uh, drove the ship and steered the ship staring straight up into the sky at the stars the entire time. No captain ever stood at the wheel and just stared at the sky the whole time. That's, That's ludicrous. That's crazy. He had to look where he was going. He had to see and steer the ship. And there were perhaps times when he allowed the ship to get blown off course a little ways and he would go back and look at things and chart things and and find out he needs to get back on course. There were certainly times where during the middle of the night a captain might fall asleep and he might nod off and sit at the wheel and it gets off course a little ways. But he's got to get back on course or he's not going to end up to his destination. So likewise, to be saved does not mean perfection. There's a time when we will be perfected 
But to be saved does not mean in the here and now that your life is perfect. What it means is this. It means that I don't sail through life flippantly. I'm not sailing through life claiming to be a Christian, but living my life haphazardly. But instead, I chart my course according to the Word of God. I chart my course looking to God's commandments and following what He says as best as I can. And as I learn more and more about what it means to be faithful, if I do find that I have veered off course, then what do I do? I repent and I get my life back on course with following God's commandments. That's what a saved person does. You might say, well, wait just a minute. I'm, what am I supposed to think about verse 9? Look at chapter 3, verse 9. How am I supposed to take that verse? That verse gives me problems. That verse gives me fits. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. That's what John says. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. He just does not sin. How am I supposed to take that, Brother Crispin? That's, that's pretty incriminating. Well, I'll just tell you, it doesn't mean that you won't ever sin. He writes in chapter 2, verse 1, Little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, why would he write that? Because we sin. Why would he write that? Because we're going to be guilty of sinning. And we need to know what Christ has done for us. We need to know we have an advocate that stands before us and holy God. God will administer wrath on sin. We need an advocate to stand before us. And Jesus does that. The Bible says we are justified by our faith. Jesus is the justifier. He stands before holy God on our behalf and says, I pronounce him saved. I pronounce him born again, having the righteousness of God. That's what it means that he stands before us as our justifier. So he says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. It means he does not habitually commit sin. He does not get off in sin and stay there. Doesn't mean he won't ever sin. He means he won't continue to habitually commit sin. You cannot habitually commit sin and be saved. That's a pretty strong word, Brother Crispin. No, you can't. Why? If you've been born again, it's not part of your nature to stay in sin. You see that word seed in verse 9? In verse 9, the word seed is the word sperma. It refers to a seed or anything which germinates when it is sown or produces or causes something to grow. And it says that he has placed his seed in your life. You have the seed within you. That's what it says. I don't think I read all of that, did I? Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, he cannot sin, but the Bible says none of us are without sin. We know that we sin. The Bible talks about believers sinning. Throughout the New Testament, we read that. So we know believers can sin. They just don't habitually stay in their sin. They get right with God. They want to be right with God. So this Greek word sperma refers to a seed or anything that germinates to produce something. When it's sown, it produces something. And what it produces is something that's growing. So what you have in your life, you have the sperma, the seed of God planted within you. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know what it can mean. He doesn't tell us totally what it means. What we do know it means is we have faith in us or we wouldn't be saved. 
we have the Holy Spirit in us, that word seed might refer to the Holy Spirit. We know that we have a desire within us to live for the Lord Jesus. So the seed to follow God is there if a person is saved. To have the seed of God on the inside means that you have a manifestation of the divine presence of God in your life. A manifestation is something that fills you and works itself out. In your life, if you're born again, you have a manifestation of the divine nature in you. That's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is working within you, the Bible says, to will and to do according to His will. So just like a seed germinates, just like a seed sprouts up and produces a fruitful harvest, so does the seed of God sprout up and yield the fruit of godliness in our lives. Therefore, to habitually commit sin, but feel no remorse whatsoever, to feel no conviction, to not be brokenhearted that we're drift off, we've drifted off into sin if we do and when we do, means you're not saved. To feel no conviction, no remorse, have no conscience about it, is that the Holy Spirit is not in you convicting you about it. And that would mean that you're not saved. Because when a person is saved, the things that they loved, they now hate. The things that they once hated, they now love. Why? They're a new creature. They're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. So John's not saying, if you're saved, you're going to live a perfect life. If you're saved, he's saying, you're going to have a desire to obey the commandments of God. So there's the commandment test, all right? Now he goes on to another one. I'll spend less time on these other two. It's the compassion test or the love test. Compassion. Love. Charity. Charity is love. It's the same word there. So find chapter 3. You're in chapter 3. Find verse 14. We know. There's the word know again. We know that we have passed from death to life. That is to pass from being unsaved to being saved. We have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Brethren are the saved. The brethren are those who are born again. The brethren is the church, and in particular, the local church where we are right now. Just looking back and forth. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. A saved person wants to be right with other brothers and sisters and wants to spend time with the saints of God. But we've all heard people say, you know, I don't believe a a person, I don't believe a Christian has to go to church to be saved. And I would say, well, that's, that's okay. Part of your theology is right. You can miss church and still be a Christian. But there's one thing wrong with with having that and using that as an excuse for not being part of a local church. The Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Not to forsake the assembling of the saints together and goes on to say, as some are in the habit of doing. Now, maybe you've been in that predicament. I've I've been in that. This verse talking to me, okay? I've been there before. Back in my earlier 20s, my earlier adult life, I might go to church, I might not. Just depended on how I felt. But then there came a time, I was about 24, 25, and I said, you know what, I'm either going to live for the Lord or not. I'd been saved a couple of years, and I just had to make, I'm going to be committed to the local church body or I'm not. And I sang in their choir for a while, you know. 
Uh, am I going to sing or not? Am I going to show up and practice or not? Where, what, what am I going to do? And so I found my, my seat up to the very top row of the choir, right over there, the top right. And, and I stayed there a good number of years until we moved. There was a time when I had to make those decisions. I wanted to be with the body of Christ. I didn't want to be with the world. And that's a decision that we have to make when we come to Christ. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. But instead, you know what he says? He says, show up and love. Show up and serve. Show up and build up. Show up and edify the saints. And he said, do it more and more as we see the day of his appearing drawing near. So that's the focus. Jesus is coming. We should show up and encourage one another in the faith more and more as we see his day coming. Now, you say, well, I didn't know I could see his day coming. Oh, it's coming. But when? Well, we don't know when, but we know today we're one day closer. Amen? So we ought to be serving and loving one another more and more. I found this interesting to learn as I was preparing this this week. In the scriptures, in the New Testament, the word saint is never in the singular. It is always saints. Did you know that? It's saints. When he talks about the saints, it's always about the church. It's always about the body. Whether it's a small body of believers or a larger body of believers, it's always about everyone. It's plural. And so the emphasis is on the body of Christ, the church, the body of believers, the whole group. And so it's the nature of Christ in you. It's the nature of being a Christian to want to be around the saints, the body of Christ. It's the nature of a Christian to want to love the church body, the other believers, and to want what is best for them. I want what is best for your life in Christ Jesus. You want what is best for my life in Christ Jesus. And if that means for you that he prospers you in some way or or another, whether uh, intellectually, whether through spiritual gifts, whether financially, whatever it means, I'm, I'm to be happy for you. We're to weep with those who weep and we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what it means. And we do that one for another. It's the nature of God within us. We have that seed within us that wants what God wants that's best for our lives. And so one of the first ways that we describe God to people If you think about it, someone says, well, what's God like? I mean, I don't know. What's God like? And what do we usually say? Well, first of all, God is love. That's the first way we describe God to people. He's love. And then we'll say something like this, or we might even use this as our first explanation. And he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. So that you would believe on him and not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. We'll quote the verse. We'll say that it's the nature of God to love. And we just read a few minutes ago that we have God's seed in us. That we have part of his divine nature, his seed residing in us. Causing us to love and to have compassion for other people. So here's the compassion test in verse 14. We know we have passed from being lost to being saved. We've passed from death to life because we have love for the brethren. The Bible says if we don't have it, we abide in death. To abide in death means we're not having eternal life as a promise for our lives. We are abiding in death in the right now 
and it will be fulfilled in the end for eternity. It'll stay the same unless something changes. If we don't have it, we abide in death. That means we're not saved. So if you find yourself always making excuses for why you don't want to be with the people of God, one of two things is true. Either you love the people of God, you just don't like those people of God. And there's some of those churches. Either you, if you love God and you love the saints of God and you want to, you desire to be around the people of God, but you kind of come to that place in your life and say, but I just can't stand those people of God. You got to find another people of God or get on your knees and pray that these people of God will change and get in there and help them change. It running off isn't always the answer either. I remember my folks, I didn't learn this till later. My mother told me this. this was at my, my father passed away. Uh, back in 2000. So he's been gone for a good while. We had a lot of years with my mother still, and I remember her saying, back in 1964, that's when I was nine months old, 1964, you were nine months old, and we moved to Pampa, Texas, and we found the church we were going to go to, and my, your dad said to me, we're going to join this church, but we're not ever leaving, no matter what. And from early 1960s, Till I graduated in the 80s and then after that, I think that church had started three other churches. That's how we like to say it in a nice way. They started three more churches and mom said, there was that one time I was ready to go. But your dad always said, there's nothing bad enough that we ever have to leave that we won't find somewhere else in another church. It's going to be there too because people are people. He had made a commitment Never did they say, we don't want to be around the people of God. Never did they say, we're not going to get down there and serve and help. They always did. If you find yourself always making excuses as to why you don't like going to church, why you don't want to serve, or you don't want to fellowship with God's people, you're probably lost. Because there is the seed of God planted in you when you came to Christ, if you came to Christ. That makes you want to be with the people of God because you love the brethren. I know this is kind of hard to receive, but I'm going to tell you it's the truth. The love of God manifests itself in our lives if we are saved and belong to Him. You might say, well, preacher, I'm not lost. I'm just not being obedient to God's command. Because I don't want to be there and I don't feel like going sometimes. I'm not lost. I'm just not being obedient to God's command. Well, you got that problem with test number one. Because test number one says we're to obey God's commands. And God says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now you're sitting here, you're going, okay, Brother Christman, go on to number three because you're preaching to the choir. We're all here. I get that. But you know what? We're not all here all the time. In fact, these seats would be filled if everybody who was a part of this church was here right now. It would be overflowing. Don't fail the test. If you don't want to be obedient to God's commands, you failed number one. If you don't want to love, you're still failing number one. You're failing number two. That's two out of three. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, Brother Richard, but I know when you have a test and there's three questions on it, if you failed two of the answers, I know you're down to like 33 and a third for your grade. Other people told me how hard it is to work out of that, you know. I don't know. I don't think I ever had a 33 Okay, I'm sure I did. If you're failing two out of three, you might have a problem this morning, okay? The school wouldn't pass you. So here's the commandment test. Here's the compassion test. Now look at the commitment test. 
Turn with me to chapter 5, verse 10. Are you ready for the commitment test? He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. This word believe. To believe on the Lord Jesus means to commit to. So it's a commitment test. You have committed to and trusted in. So we can say, I believe in someone. We're saying, I believe in their existence. Someone can say, I believe in God. I just don't believe he's Jesus. Well, then you're failing the test. You're calling God a liar because this is a witness he has of his son. And that witness is in you if you believe in him. So you believe, that means you are trusting in for salvation and you are committed to him by faith. The Bible doesn't say he who once believed, that's past tense. The Bible says you believe, it's present tense, you believe in him. And so I'm saying this because we've all known people who have walked the aisle. I walked the aisle as an eight-year-old boy. My Sunday school teacher met me at the altars when we weren't afraid to have any. And we knelt down there. And, and, and he came down and followed me down. And he led me through a plan of salvation. What we call the plan of salvation. We call it the sinner's prayer. Receiving Christ. But I'm going to tell you, I did not receive Christ at the time. You know why I went down that day? I saw my buddy go down. And I thought, well, he's doing it. I ought to do it. So I went down. I didn't even know why I was down there. But I repeated some words and all that. But did you know I'm just sharing that to say this? That really happens sometimes. Someone goes and they really don't make a commitment of trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've known people who went when they were six and they were saved and never, never, ever wavered in their faith. They continued to grow in the Lord. So I'm not here to bring judgment on that, but I am to bring a warning. We've all known people who've walked the aisle but have nothing to do with the church. Their lives show no spiritual growth whatsoever. They, They don't receive the preaching and teaching of the word. They don't really want to be fellowshipping with other believers. They really don't care about missions. They don't care about evangelism, telling people about Jesus, the gospel. They're not in support of all that. The Bible only knows one kind of Christian, and that's the the man or the woman, the young boy, the young girl, in whom he has planted his Holy Spirit in because of their faith in him. Now, on the other hand, some will try to tell you that if you don't know the exact date and the exact time, brother, you're not saved. I don't believe that either. Will Rogers went to apply for a birth certificate. And when the clerk asked him for proof of his, his birth, she said, well, what's your birth date? He said, I don't know for sure my exact birth date. And she said, well, we have to know for sure the exact birth date. And, and you have to prove it with a birth certificate. So I really need your birth certificate. He said, you need my birth certificate. Why do you need my birth certificate? For crying out loud, I'm standing right here. I was born. Here I am. You may have a baptism certificate on the wall of your bedroom, but that's not the test of salvation. We can't use that totally for or against ourselves. The best proof that you have that you are saved is right in your seat. The best proof you have that you are saved is you. The best proof is that in your heart, you know you have the seed of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, that God is doing a work in your life, that when you do sin, you can't stand it. You want to get right with God. You want to open up His Word. And when the Word 
speaks to you. Adrian Rogers used to say, I read the Word, but the Word of God reads me. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit will read you and look at your life. What's he doing? He's drawing you to, to come to a closer fellowship with him. He's drawing you to walk with him. Why, why, does this really, why does this dwell on you so much, Brother Crispin? I don't want people who are saved to think they're lost, but I don't want people who are not saved to think they're saved and miss heaven. Adrian Rogers said this, Until we get the future settled, it's hard to concentrate on the present. Until you're ready to die, you're not ready to live. You have to have the future settled. D.L. Moody said, I've never known anyone who served the Lord well without having assurance of his or her salvation. So there's the commandment test. You desire to obey the commandments of the Lord. There's the compassion test. You love the people of God. And there's the commitment test. You have believed on Jesus for salvation and your life indicates that you believe. And you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart confirming to you that you belong to Him. If you have that, then you have the promise in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know, that you may know. Now I'm going to go back to my very first question. Are you sure? You're the one who knows. You and the Spirit of God, you know. Be sure today.